Father, let us indeed serve you with delight. As we continue in worship, let us hear you. Give us ears to not just hear, but to understand. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I don't like to talk about death. I don't really like to think that much about death. Death brings up thoughts of pain and heartbreak and agony and grief and loss and loneliness. Everything that I want to avoid. I remember one of the, one of the earliest memories that I have as a child was I was four years old. And I can still visualize sitting with my family in front of our little black and white television watching John Kennedy's funeral procession through the streets of our nation's capital. I was four years old, but that memory is emblazoned in my mind. I remember a couple of years later when a state trooper who lived in our little southern Indiana town was killed while investigating a um, domestic dispute. And I just remember the feeling of sadness that came over that community at this man's death. And I remember at the age of 16, standing at the casket of my great-grandfather, who I knew very well, with my grandmother. And for the first time in my life, experiencing a death of someone that I loved and was close to. I would suspect that my experiences probably with death are probably nothing compared to many of your experiences. I know many of your experiences with death. But I've lived long enough and, and, I, and I've dealt with death long enough to know that it's something that comes to us. It, it's a part of our lives. I think that was in the back of my mind when I came upon First Chronicles a few months ago. I've been reading through the Bible again this year. And, and let me tell you, I want to encourage you to, to make an attempt to do that. Because you read passages that you would probably never read. And when you come to a passage like we read this morning from First Chronicles, you sort of scratch your head and say, why is that here? It's one of those passages, I was thinking as we... You know, as we uh, responded to the reading, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and we may be thinking, really, thanks be to God for that passage? <laughs> you sort of you wonder about it, right? But it, but, it's tr- but it is there because God has a purpose for us. And, and I was wondering, I wasn't sure who was going to be reading Scripture today, but, you know, I, I felt sorry for them running through all of those names, and Paul did it so eloquently. Well, you look at a passage like that, and this is a passage that describes for us, talks to us about the kings of Edom. And and they are, these are powerful kings. When the beginning of of, um, verse 43 says, these are the kings who ruled before Israel had a king. These are kings who had a lot of power. Because once Israel gained and picked up power, 
the nation of Eden lessened significantly. So these are, these are men who garner respect. These are men who shape people's lives and nations. These are names of men with wealth and power and prestige. They are famous. They are the most famous people in, in the land, in, in their kingdom in that day. They are the Julius Caesar of their day. They're the George Washington of their day, the, the Winston Churchill of their day. Everyone honors them, respects them. You bow down before them. These are the people who have it all. Riches, fame, power. And what does it tell us about them? They reigned and they died. He reigned and he 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 died. And when you get to the last one, he says... Oh, and by the way, Hadad, he also died. Just in case you were wondering that he was going to be like the rest of them. They all die. And we're reminded that death is a universal reality for every one of us. Every one of us, whether we like it or not, is going to face death. We face death when people we love die and Someday, we're all going to face our own death. It's a universal reality. The writer of Hebrews says that it is every person is destined to die. The psalmist says no one can escape the terror of the grave. We are all going to die. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor If you're famous or invisible, it doesn't matter if you're educated or illiterate, if you're powerful or weak, we all die. Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, agnostics, Wiccans, we all die. Americans, Canadians, Palestinians, Germans, Argentinians, Australians, Chinese, we all die. And the question before us is not, are we going to die? The question is, what's our response? How do we live in in, in the face of the universal reality of death? I have found as you, as I as I talk to folks, and as I think about my own life, that some of us have a tendency to to respond to the reality of death with denial, and our, and our culture and our society is continually encouraging denial. We are we are regularly we find new ways to sanitize the reality of death. We do that with our language. Most people, when they talk about someone dying, use some sort of euphemism to describe it. And it just feels a little nicer. It also may be just a little bit less real. I was talking with Herb Williams this week, the funeral director in Fillmore, about this very thing. And he said to me, sometimes he has people who come to him... And, and as they sit down to talk about 
preparing the funeral of, of a loved one, their comment is, we just want what is quickest and easiest. And he said, you know, it's obvious that they just want to, to be done with this and, and to get through it as, as quickly as they can and then forget about it. And there's something in that, maybe subconsciously, but something in that of wanting to avoid the, the truth and the reality of death. He was telling me that a lot of people, as they, as they get older, come in to see him and make prearrangements about death, which I think is a great thing to do. I think it takes a lot of weight off of family members at the point of death. He said, sometimes people will say to him, they'll come in, sit down and say, now, if I should die, here's what I want you to do. He said, I know what they mean. They mean when I die, but it doesn't come out that way. Some people come in and say, if I should die, as though it might or might not happen. It's just a subtle, subconscious means of denying the truth. And you know, it's it's an issue that we've been wrestling with as human beings all of our existence. You go back to the second chapter of Genesis. And God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, you will die. We come to chapter 3 and Satan appears to Adam and Eve and, and uh, he says, so God says you can't eat of the trees of the garden? No, no, no. We can eat of all the trees we want except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if we eat of that tree, we're going to die. And what is Satan's response? You're not going to die. And from that moment on, he has been continually tempting us to believe you're not going to die. And to live our lives in such a way as to live our lives in denial about the reality of our deaths. I also find that sometimes our response to the reality of death is fear. That we are so afraid of dying that it, it paralyzes us in living. We, we, we have created so many, so many ways of protecting ourselves in this world. And, and many of them are very good. And, and our government is, is very good at being concerned about our safety. And, and we should applaud that. I worked in an emergency room for three years. So I understand the consequences of people who don't pay attention to safety. But I also wonder sometimes if, we, if some of the decisions that are made are simply a response of fear. One person has one issue and now we have a law that protects ever, that ever happening again. And, and I, again, we, we need the protections and we need the safety measures and those are important. But, but sometimes it seems to me as though it's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction Because we're afraid of death. And people who are afraid of death don't really live. When we're afraid of death, we're we're paralyzed to live. We become incapacitated to really give ourselves to life. And again, this has been going on for a long time. David writes in Psalm 55 about the terrors of death that assail him. He understands what it is to be afraid about death. And we know that. And, and of course, there, there, there are good things that we ought to be doing to protect ourselves. You know, caution is one thing. Being paralyzed is something else. 
We ought to be wise about how we live. But we also ought to be willing to take some risks. And I wonder sometimes if the reason we don't risk more for God is because we are so enveloped in fear. Maybe it's fear that prevents us from from going on a missions trip or maybe it's fear that prevents us from, from engaging in a work in an inner city area that we feel would be really dangerous. Maybe it's fear that keeps us from just moving forward with the things that God is asking us to do because we're afraid of where it might lead us and the unknown frightens us. And so we just stay back, afraid. About 10 years ago, I read an article about Saddam Hussein. This, this was a year before he was captured, about six months before the invasion of Iraq. He was still operating fully as the president of the nation. And the story was titled, Saddam Rules by Fear and Lives Fearfully. And it was a story that was the information gleaned from some of his closest uh, people who told about what his life was like. How he had, he had his food prepared in 10 different uh, places so that no one knew exactly which meal he was going to eat so they couldn't poison him. And anyone who came to visit him was searched thoroughly and had to wash their hands in three different kinds of liquids to make sure they were clean. And everything he touched was tested before he touched it. Linens, toiletries, tableware. Before he touched anything, it was extensively tested. He had, uh, through plastic surgery, he had body doubles made of himself. So the people knew exact, knew, never knew exactly where he was. He lived in these elaborate palaces. But instead of, of living in them, he lived in bunkers underneath them. And he never slept in the same place more than one night in a row. He never slept more than two or three hours a night. And he was always armed. And he was just engrossed in fear. This is a man who has had great power and great wealth. But he was so fearful. And I doubt if any of us are going to go to that kind of extreme. But I wonder if sometimes... Fear doesn't keep us from being the people God wants us to be. And to take the the kinds of risks that God is leading us to take. And to live our lives in the fullness of what God wants for us. Of course, the opposite of that can also be true. For some people, the reality of death leads them to live in self-indulgence. Everything is about me. And, you know, it's the thing of... If I'm going to die anyway, I'm going to do everything I can to live every thrill, every exhilaration, every moment that I possibly can. And we, and we live, but, but the thing is, it's like the beer commercial used to tell us years ago. You only go around once in life, so go for the gusto. And that usually means I want to get what I want to get. And I'm going to live my life about me. I want to get what I want and when I want it, and how I want it. And, it is, and if it hurts other people, well, that's too bad, because life is about me, because I only go around once anyway. And everything focuses on us. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 
chapter 12, about the rich man who has such a great harvest that he can't put it all into his barns. And so instead of sharing it with people and giving it to people who have less, he says, I'll build bigger barns so I can hoard it and keep it for myself. At the end of the parable, God says of him, you fool. It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in ourselves. There's a lot of people who, after the movie came out, are making bucket lists. You know, the things you want to do before you die. There's some good to that. I think, I think to have some, some purpose to life, the things you want to accomplish, I think it's good. But a lot of the bucket lists that I come across are pretty self-indulgent. You know, I want to do what I want to do. I want to make sure I experience this. I want to make sure I get this. I want to make sure I do that. We get all wrapped up in what we want. And life becomes about the next high. You know, to have the next thing, the next possession, the next toy. Everything becomes about me. And instead of using things and loving people, we love things and use people. And we allow the, the, the reality of death to just drive us further and further inside of ourselves. And we see this even in the church. You know, it, I'll, I'll be a part of the church as long as it's about me. As long as you do what I want you to do. As long as everything focuses on me, then we're good. And God calls us to so much more than that. So what do we do? If those are the, the, the wrong responses, what's the right one? I think as I've been pondering this and trying to boil it down, it seems to me that the most appropriate response to the reality of death is holiness. Jesus says in Matthew 22, when asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When John Wesley was asked, what do you mean by holy living? He took people back to this verse. And said, this is what I mean. That God is first. That relationship with God is the focal point of our lives. And out of that, then we love people. As we love ourselves. I don't know how many of you are fans of country music. But a few years ago, Tim McGraw recorded a song that he titled, Live Like You Were Dying. Some of you may have heard it. And he wrote this song about a conversation, an imaginary conversation with his father, Tug McGraw, who was a former professional baseball player and who had been diagnosed with cancer. And in the beginning of the song, it's really a story. And in the beginning of the song, he says, uh, you know, this man tells him, his father tells him he was in his early 40s and, and he discovered that they'd been diagnosed with cancer. And McGraw says to him, I asked him, you know, when this really became real, that this might be the end, what'd you do? And he says, well, I went skydiving and I climbed the Rocky Mountains and I did a little bull riding. And he says, and then, but I also loved deeper. And I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness that I'd been denying. That's a beautiful 
image. And it's a wonderful picture of what can happen when you're gripped by the reality of death, that it has a bearing on how you relate to people and treat people. And he goes on to talk about that I wasn't the father I should have been, and, and this helped me to be that. And, it, and it, it's got a great message to the song. But the truth is, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough to, to be nice to people. It's not enough to do good things. God is calling us to be righteous people. God is calling us to be people who are transformed by His Spirit. And out of that transformation, to then become people in this world who love and, and have compassion and who sacrifice and surrender. But it begins with our relationship with the Father. It begins with, with asking God and, and doing all that we can in our power to let God make us holy people. <coughs> the reality of that is that most of the time, the idea of holiness and the, and the ability for us to be ready for God to make us holy people is going to bring us back to the spiritual disciplines. The disciplines of prayer and reading of scripture and solitude and community. And you know when... When, when death, when the reality of death comes at us, when we think to ourselves, I don't have a lot of time, the most natural response is to say, I've got to do everything I can. But the truth is, before we do everything we can, God wants us to be everything he created us to be. And the spiritual disciplines, spending time in prayer and the reading of God's word and in solitude and in being community, the spiritual disciplines are never wasted. It's never wasted time. Because through the spiritual disciplines, we are opening our lives and our hearts to let the spirit change us and transform us and speak into our lives. And that gives us the power that we need to then be the kind of people in this world that God's calling us to be. People of compassion and love and mercy and truth. And of course, all of that brings us back to the realization. And we can live this way in, in the power of Christ because we know that because death is not the end for Christ, death is not the end for those who are in Christ. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, in this passage we read earlier, that if Christ is not raised, then none of us are going to be raised. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then so will those who are in him be raised from the dead. And the way we live now in the spirit and in the power of Christ, we are making an eternal decision, not just a temporal decision. We are, we are engaging ourselves with the risen Christ who fills us and changes all of our priorities and our perspectives about how we live now. Because coming to grips with the reality of death is not just about, it's not just about death, it's about living. It's about living with purpose and meaning about shaping our lives and living our lives 
in the context of eternity. That what we do now is about the kingdom of God, not just on earth now, but for all of eternity. And it changes our priorities. It changes what's important to us. It changes how we spend our time and energy and what we value, how we live. Now, as I was pondering this, this whole idea of living and, and death and how death impinges on how we live, I, I thought back to the scene that Mark Twain writes in Tom Sawyer. It's a scene in which uh, the, the whole town believes that Tom is dead. And he comes back to town to tell them he's not dead, but then he realizes that they're preparing a funeral service for him. And he thinks it might be kind of interesting to attend his own funeral. And so he and, and Huck and some friends, they climb up in the balcony where no one can see them, and, and they listen as this funeral service takes place. And what is so interesting is that in the service for these rascally boys, no one can end, no one can say enough nice things about them. You know, they, they just keep, the, the minister who has to punish Tom every Sunday in Sunday school now describes him as a boy with the sweetest, generous nature he's ever seen in his life. And it got me to thinking, when the day comes and people stand in front of our casket, they gather for our service, what are they going to say about us? Are they going to have to do all kinds of mental and verbal gymnastics in order to be kind? Are they going to have to sort of Tom Sawyer us? Or will the words of kindness and and the impressions of our lives just naturally flow as they talk about people who lived holy lives, who lived with godly purpose and meaning and significance. Maybe even people who inspired them in the way they live. You and I probably are never going to be placed in a position where we are going to change the whole world. But what about our world? The places where God leads us and calls us. Our family, our friends, where we work, where we live. What kind of influence are we going to have upon them? At the end of, of the chorus of Tim McGraw's song, his dad says to him, I hope someday you have the chance to live like you were dying. I kind of think we all do. Every one of us has the opportunity to live like we are dying. So what are we going to do? Heavenly Father, 
These are hard things for us to think about. I don't really like to think about them. But we know it's true. Father, our desire is that we would be so filled with your spirit that we would live a life that reflects you. A life where we are not paralyzed by the fear of death, but motivated by the reality of death. Father, this morning, we ask for your help. We ask for your grace. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something this week. It, it, might, it might feel a little bit morbid, but I think it has value. I'm going to ask you to take, I don't know, half an hour, an hour, whatever it takes to sit down this week and think about, write down what you would like people to say about you at your funeral. What would you, what would you hope people would say about you at your funeral? And then take that piece of paper and ask God to give you the grace to live in such a way that that's exactly what happens. As we close the service this morning, we're going to be singing together hymn number 295. And let this be our prayer as we contemplate my life, my love, I give to thee.